You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of Deirdre Mulcahy. Thursday, the 14th of September, 1989, a man was walking to work in Middleton, East Cork. His route took him through a piece of scrub ground between the Riversfield housing estate and a footbridge over the Oanacurra River, known as the Pontoon Bridge, which brought pedestrians close to the centre of Middleton. At around 7am, just off the side of the mucky path through the marshy wasteland, the walker saw a body of a girl. Her face was bloodied and broken, and she was naked below the waist. The young man realised that the girl was dead and rang to summon Gardi. It had begun to rain heavily by the time Gardi, along with a local GP, Dr Jim Doran, arrived on the scene. The spot, which was just a few hundred yards from the main street in the town, was Courtendall. The girl was identified as 19-year-old Deirdre Mulcahy. The night before, Deirdre was to have been out with friends in the town and she'd been expected home by her father, William, but Deirdre hadn't shown up as planned. William began to look around the town for his youngest daughter, but there was no sign of Deirdre. At about 3am, he reported her missing to Gardee. Deirdre was the youngest of six children in the Mulcahy family. Two of her older brothers had moved to London and one of her sisters emigrated to the US. Deirdre's other brother and sister were still living locally, but Deirdre was the only one who still lived in the family home in Ballinacurra, just about a mile outside of Middleton town. Deirdre had attended the local convent school and was described as a lovely, quiet girl who was particularly close to her father. This closeness was likely even more pronounced as Deirdre's mother had died some years before. Deirdre had spent the previous year after she finished school working as an au pair in France and then she'd been in America for three months on a working holiday where she visited her sister. By the time of her death, Deirdre had been back home in Middleton for just two weeks. She had been excited to hear news of whether she would receive a place at the Regional Technical College in Cork and she was looking forward to beginning her third level studies. Deirdre had just found out that she was to start her secretarial course the Tuesday after her death. A murder investigation was quickly launched, which was headed by Superintendent Morris Murray, who was to be assisted by members from the Garda Technical Bureau. Superintendent Murray told the press that Thursday that there was no definite motive for the crime, but they were treating the case as murder. He also appealed for anyone with information on Deirdre's movements the night before to come forward. They were anxious to reconstruct where Deirdre had been, when and with whom, on the Wednesday evening. Dr John Harbison had been notified immediately and he began to make his way from Dublin down to Cork. The pathologist arrived in Middleton at half past four and conducted an initial examination of Deirdre's body at the scene. Four forensics experts arrived down from Dublin too in order to thoroughly examine the scene. The post-mortem was carried out that evening 
It was thought that Deirdre might have been the victim of a sexual assault, but various tests would have to be carried out before this could be confirmed. What was known for sure was that Deirdre had severe injuries to her head, sustained in the course of a severe beating with a blunt instrument. In the wake of Deirdre's killing, the small town of Middleton, with a population of only around 6,000, was in shock. The spot Deirdre had been found was not far from one of the busiest streets in the town, and though it was secluded, the pathway was used frequently. It seemed unbelievable that such an apparently violent and vicious crime could occur so close to busy areas, full of people and life. One resident told the Evening Echo, quote, I hope whoever did this did not come from here. If he did, he'll be chopped up. It's awful to think that Deirdre could go to France and America and come back home and have something like this happen. A neighbour of the Mulcahys told the Irish Independent, quote, This village is torn asunder with grief. As the Garda investigation got underway and ramped up, door-to-door inquiries were begun and further details of Deirdre's movements were discovered. The Cork Examiner reported that the night of her death, Deirdre had been due to meet her best friend, Anya, at 9pm in Middleton and they were to go to the pub that night. Anya told the press that she had seen Deirdre at 5pm on Wednesday evening and it was then that the two girls had made their arrangements. They often met at the pub during the week when Anya had the night off. According to the examiner, when Deirdre hadn't arrived at Sessions Pub as expected, Anya had gone to her house, but Deirdre wasn't there, and so she and William Mulcahy began a search. Gardy had also received information about sightings of Deirdre on the evening of her death. She had called into the local video rental place, Modern Electric, and returned a tape just before the shop was to close at eight o'clock. There was no conversation between her and the employee on the late shift that night. After that, Deirdre had met two of her friends in the town. She was happy to have run into them and told them the good news that she'd heard she was accepted into the course she wanted. Deirdre had made plans for later on Wednesday night that she was to be collected by her father at half past eleven in Middleton, but, of course, she hadn't arrived at her friend's house, never mind to the pub in the town or to where her dad was to collect her. It seemed that after speaking with her friends in the town centre, Deirdre had decided to take a shortcut out to a friend's house along the pontoon walkway where the attack occurred. At that early stage in the investigation, Gurdy were unsure if Deirdre had been followed or stalked on her walk, or if someone had been laying in wait for a woman to pass by, or if they'd just acted on impulse to attack while they took the shortcut. The Irish press newspaper reported that Garda sources said if the killer was local, it was almost certain that Deirdre knew him. Deirdre's funeral took place on Saturday the 16th after her brothers arrived home from London and her sister made it back from the States. The young woman's removal the night before to the Church of the Holy Rosary prompted scenes of grief and shock in the small village as her body was brought to the parish church. The following morning, the Bishop of Cloyne, Dr. John McGee, led the Mass. Father Vincent O'Donoghue, the parish priest, addressed the congregation and noted it was, quote, very difficult to offer comfort when such grief is felt. Friends, neighbours and residents of Middleton attended the Requiem Mass and Deirdre was buried alongside her mother in the graveyard next to the church in the centre of the town.
Meanwhile, Gardy continued their search for both a suspect in the case and the weapon that had been used to beat Deirdre, given that the post-mortem report indicated that Deirdre had died from blunt force trauma to her head. Gardy would still not confirm whether there had been any evidence of a sexual assault found. Gardy also established Deirdre had been alive at a quarter past ten when she was seen walking in the direction of the path that would take her across the river and to the marshy area where she had been found dead. A number of people had spoken to Deirdre just before she set out on her own that night, and detectives had a list of suspects that they wanted to interview. But investigators told the press that they still had a, quote, wide-open line of inquiry and Superintendent Murray again appealed for information from the public regarding Deirdre's movements that night, as well as any suspicious activity that had been noticed. The superintendent further disclosed that the public response had been very good thus far and said they were grateful to those who had assisted them. But on the night Deirdre was laid to rest, Garda sources admitted that they were no closer to finding out who had committed the vicious killing and so the hunt for evidence continued unabated. The dense bushes and shrubs along the pontoon path remained cordoned off, and Gardy began searching the river for a weapon. A number of items were collected from the scene and were sent off for further examination. It was revealed early the next week that an iron bar had been one of the items sent for testing. Superintendent Murray spoke to reporters and said, quote, We simply don't know at this stage if it was used in the attack on the girl. Only forensic examinations will determine that. We are leaving no stone unturned, and we will not do so in our resolve to bring this fiend to justice. This episode is sponsored in part by Calm. Calm is the number one mental wellness app, giving you the tools to improve the way you feel. Right now, if you go to calm.com forward slash men's, you'll get a special offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription, and new content is added every week. How have you been caring for yourself lately? Whether it's taking longer baths, going on evening strolls, or indulging in midday naps, pair your self-care ritual with Calm and take your wellness to the next level. Reduce stress and anxiety through guided meditations, improve focus with curated music tracks, and rest and recharge with Calm's imaginative sleep stories for children and adults. There's even new daily movement sessions designed to relax your body and uplift your mind. Over 100 million people around the world use Calm to take care of their minds. Calm is ready to help you stress less, sleep more, and live a happier, healthier life. For listeners of Mens Rea, Calm has an exclusive offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com forward slash mens. Go to calm.com forward slash mens for 40% off unlimited access to Calm's entire library. That's calm.com forward slash mens. This episode is also sponsored in part by Noom. Sign up for your trial today at noom.com forward slash mensrea. Noom uses a psychology-based approach to help get people on track to eating healthier. 
This is what I think makes it so genius. Instead of demanding you eat kale three times a day, Noom helps you understand your mind and body to get long-term results. I am the first to admit that the minute someone tells me what to do, I go into rebellion mode, changing the way I think and then making habit changes in order to impact my health positively avoids all that. Instead of putting down a strict set of rules, Noom focuses on information and psychology to build smarter, more sustainable habits and behaviors. These last couple of months have reminded me how important it is to be properly mindful when it comes to nutrition and has allowed me to really see the impact different types of nutrition have on my mind and body day to day. Emphasizing the process and progress over strict rules and perfection has been a total game changer for me. And that approach is something that Noom has given me that I know I will be carrying with me into the future. So if you want some help to get healthier or to lose some weight for good, sign up for your trial at noom.com forward slash mensrea. That's n-o-o-m dot com forward slash mensrea. As the investigation into Deirdre Mulcahy's killing entered its second week, house-to-house inquiries continued and further appeals to the public were made. Rumours that were going around in the absence of official news were condemned by investigators who said, quote, rumour and ridiculous speculation are something we could do without. The rumours included suggestions that a suspect had not only been identified in the case, but had been arrested and was expected to be charged before the court, but this was not true. Another rumour was actually printed in Dublin's Phoenix magazine. This was that Gardy had received letters from Deirdre's killer in which he said he would kill again. Garda sources described the report as, quote, scurrilous and hurtful to everyone. They insisted that no such letters had been received. On the 22nd of September, the Cork Examiner reported that they had a reliable tip that new information that had proved useful had recently been acquired by Gardee and that this was being analysed. Later that day, at 6pm, a 37-year-old local man was arrested under Section 4 of the Criminal Justice Act and held at Middleton Garda Station for questioning. Gardy refused to provide any further information on the matter, a position that did not change when the man was released the following day at 2pm without charge. Superintendent Morris Murray once again spoke to the press on the 26th of September. He said that the case was still, quote, wide open, with no definite lines of inquiry. He finally confirmed that the evidence Gardy now had suggested that Deirdre had been sexually assaulted. This had likely occurred after she was attacked from behind, sustaining blows to the head, which proved fatal. Gardy had also received further tips from the public and began seeking further information on the basis of these new leads. The evening press reported that one of the tips came from a person who had been walking through a car park near to the path Deirdre had taken, who had been frightened by a person described as a, quote, suspicious character. The investigators in Middleton appealed for a truck driver who had parked facing the river at the car park near Broderick Street and a person who had been driving a red Ford Fiesta parked at the Riverside Estate who flashed their lights at the time of the incident to come forward. This incident had happened just a short time before Deirdre was attacked. Anyone who had crossed the pontoon bridge around the time of Deirdre's killing or who had been attacked in the area in the years before were asked to come forward. 
the Irish Independent outlined a separate incident where an older woman had been attacked in the same area as Deirdre the year before, but she had not reported her attack to police at the time. This woman had filled out one of the questionnaires handed out by Gardi and had described the incident then. The woman had blacked out during the attack and did not have a clear memory of what had happened. She had suffered head injuries and was treated in hospital for these after. She had not been sexually assaulted. By that date at the end of September, 4,000 people had been interviewed, 300 statements had been taken, and four people had been questioned in the course of the investigation. Gardi were still anxious to hear from any other potential witnesses, however, and a reconstruction of Deirdre's last known movements was to be filmed that day to be used in the news bulletins on RTE. The public was asked to watch the broadcasts that evening and to get in touch with Gardi if the reconstruction brought to mind anything which might assist Gardi in the investigation. Superintendent Murray appeared in the broadcast and also asked for people, especially women, to be vigilant. The Garda said that due to the, quote, bizarre nature of the crime, there was a possibility that the person who killed Deirdre might attack again. However, Superintendent Murray would not elaborate on what he meant by the term bizarre nature. In the days that followed, newspaper articles appeared which outlined that senior investigators were hoping to use new technological advances in order to solve the case. They were hoping to use what was referred to then as genetic fingerprinting to compare DNA samples taken from the scene to potential suspects in order to find Deirdre's killer. Forensic tests were reported to have confirmed that the iron bar found in the river not far from Deirdre's body had in fact been used in the attack on Deirdre. Gardi began to try and trace where exactly the hollow, inch-square steel tubing had come from. Four weeks after Deirdre Mulcahy was found dead, Gardi renewed their appeal for the two motorists who had been parked near to the scene on the night of the 13th of September to come forward. Superintendent Murray told the examiner, quote, We are desperately anxious to talk with the owners or drivers of these vehicles. The paper also reported that a young couple, perhaps in their teens, were thought to have crossed the pontoon bridge just before nine o'clock on the night Deirdre died. The male was wearing a beige jacket. Gardy asked for these young people to come forward too. Gardy also made a public request for information in relation to a gold Scottish two-pound coin that had been found at the scene. Investigators would not say if the coin was directly related to Deirdre's death. It was a commemorative coin for the Commonwealth Games, which had been held in Scotland in 1986. This was an unusual coin to have in Ireland, and Gardaí were anxious to speak to whomever might have owned it. It was later established that the coin had been lost by a boy who had cycled through the area after the Garda cordon had been removed, and he was not connected to Deirdre's murder at all. His parents had given him the coin after returning from a recent trip to Scotland. Then, another new tip was received by investigators, prompting Gardie to issue a new appeal on the evening of the 10th of October for information about a man who was seen rinsing his hands at a water tap in Cudigan's yard, not far from where Deirdre was found. This man was spotted at about 20 to 7 on the morning of September 14th at a tap located behind a shopping complex. The witness who reported the sighting to Gardy said he had tried to strike up a conversation with the man, but he was ignored. The witness described this man as being 5 foot 10 in height, in his early 20s, with dark collar-length hair. 
He had on an army-type jacket and blue jeans and was carrying a plastic bag from Quinsworth Supermarket. Gardy asked that anyone with information regarding this young man to contact them. The following month, in what again was hoped to be a new break in the case, Gardy received an anonymous call over the first weekend in November 1989 in relation to Deirdre's murder. The caller phoned twice. Both times the calls were routed through 999 to Cork's Union Key Station. The first call ended when the line dropped, but Gardy said that in the second call, the man was able to pass on what was described as extremely useful information. The caller had promised Gardy he would ring again, but had failed to do so. Gardy appealed for this man to make contact again, either by phone or by arranging a meeting. Gardy promised strictest confidentiality and stressed the importance of the information that might be provided. Superintendent Murray said, quote, I cannot stress strongly enough how important it is that this person would make immediate contact. We will go all the way in meeting with any requests he may have to make. Two months later, in January 1990, a 37-year-old man was brought in by Gardy once again for questioning in the case. Police told the press that they were now following a definite line of inquiry. The man was held for 12 hours and then released, with Gardy then saying that they did not envision charges being brought in the case on foot of that interview. By the time the year anniversary of Deirdre's death came around, no real progress had been made in the investigation. Superintendent Murray told the press, quote, There is no breakthrough, but hope springs eternal. Our inquiries are ongoing and we are still working on the case. Then, just over a week later, Deirdre's father, William Mulcahy, died suddenly in his home. One of Deirdre's sisters, Moira, discovered him in his bed. In April of 1991, Gardy seemed to be making some progress when detectives at Cork's Mayfield station detained a man for questioning in the case. At the time, they declined to make any comment. But on the 17th of April, a 24-year-old man from Middleton, Richard Laffin, appeared in court charged with stealing money from Deirdre Mulcahy on the night that she died. Laffin also faced charges of robbing a handbag from a woman between 7 and 8pm on the 7th of March 1991 at Castle Redmond in Middleton. The 24-year-old pleaded not guilty to both charges and was granted bail despite Garda objections that he might fail to appear. Just minutes after this hearing concluded, Superintendent Murray rose to his feet again and informed the court that there were an additional 13 charges to be put to Laffin. These related to a period between January 7th and March 19th of that year and involved break-ins, larceny of cash and property, and causing malicious damage. Laffin, through his solicitor, pleaded guilty to all 13 of those charges. Superintendent Murray told the court that when Laffin was apprehended in relation to these charges, he had made a full admission of guilt. Laffin had convictions dating back to 1985, including six that were for assault. He had a conviction for burglary from Jersey in 1990 also, and had served six months in prison there before returning to Middleton the previous November. Since then, Laffin had been unemployed and was not in receipt of social welfare. Laffin's solicitor told the court that due to his lack of income, his client had broken into three solicitor's offices, a school, an insurance office, 
a credit union office and a shop. To make amends for his crime, Laffin was prepared to compensate the injured parties and his solicitor asked that he be given community service. Justice Carroll, presiding at that hearing, noted that Laffin had been given a number of chances in the past to modify his behaviour and, so notwithstanding his guilty pleas, the judge sentenced Richard Laffin to a total of 18 months to be served. Richard Laffin was heading to jail, but not for anything in connection with Deirdre Mulcahy's death. Two months later, on June 24th, Vincent Power, writing for the Evening Echo, reported that a large file in connection with Deirdre's killing had been compiled and sent to the DPP. The file was described as one of the most comprehensive of any of the murder investigations that had occurred in the southeast of the country and had hundreds of pages of evidence and some 2,000 statements. The article asserted that the decision to forward the file came on foot of a major breakthrough in the investigation that had apparently come about two months before, which shed further light on Deirdre's final movements and last known contacts on the night she died. It was hoped that charges in the case would be laid soon, but the decision rested with the office of the DPP. Then, on the 29th of June, 1991, the charges of robbery against Richard Laffin were struck out. Superintendent Murray told the court that he had instructions that the DPP would be offering no evidence on the charge. It was nine months later, on the 19th of March, 1992, that Richard Laffin appeared once more at Middleton District Court, this time escorted by a heavy guard. There, he was charged with having murdered Deirdre Mulcahy in September of 1989. When Superintendent Murray gave evidence of arrest, Laffin's solicitor put it to the guard that it was unfair that reports regarding a charging in the case had appeared in a local newspaper the morning before. Superintendent Murray confirmed that he had been contacted by the media and said he'd told them only that he wouldn't confirm or deny that there was to be a hearing in the case. Laffin was remanded in custody. The following month, the state made its application to return Laffin for trial. This was objected to by Laffin's defence. Ernest Cantillion, his solicitor, asked for a two-month adjournment, pointing out that the state had taken two and a half years to build their case against his client. The defence now found itself in a position to have to go about securing their own pathologist who would have to be got from England, as well as interviewing a whole series of witnesses and in a short space of time. The judge granted an adjournment of one month and remanded Richard Laffin in continuing custody. At a subsequent hearing in the case on the 21st of May 1991, where the state again wanted the case sent forward for trial, Mr Cantillion complained to the judge that the state had not been cooperative in his efforts to prepare his client's defence. In particular, Mr Cantillion noted that a letter he had sent to the state solicitor the previous month seeking certain details in the case had gone with no response at all. Mr Cantillion also wanted access to various documents and sight of certain exhibits. Things became heated in the courtroom when Mr Cantillion said sharply, quote, I should not have had to write at all. I am not seeking concessions from the state, only my right as the accused solicitor. This is not a game of poker. 
The solicitor appearing on behalf of the state, Mr Paddy Toomey, responded tritely that he would give Mr Cantillion anything he was entitled to and continued, quote, he is entitled to certain things and he will get them and he can fight for the rest. The state solicitor particularly objected to the notion that the state would supply Laffin's defence with five copies of certain photographs. Mr Toomey went on to comment that he didn't know why it was that Mr Cantillion was requesting certain details at this early stage of proceedings. Mr Cantillion snapped that this was a matter for him and not for the state solicitor. Cantillion said, quote, The sooner I get cooperation, the sooner this case can get to court. The judge directed that Laffin's defence team were to have access to inspect exhibits in the case and the state was to hand over certain photographs that had been requested. The case was then adjourned. On the 15th of February 1993, Richard Laffin's trial opened before Mr Justice Declan Costello and a jury of nine women and three men in the Central Criminal Court. Before the proceedings proper could get underway, there were two hours of legal argument in closed court. Then Richard Laffin entered his pleas of not guilty to both a charge of murder and a charge of robbery. Mr Kevin Hoff appeared on behalf of the DPP and outlined for the jury that Deirdre Mulcahy had grabbed her handbag and left her family home on the evening of the 13th of September 1989. After meeting friends in Middleton, she made her way towards the pontoon bridge. Deirdre's body was found at 7.10 the following morning. She had been, quote, unmercifully beaten, Hoff said. Detective Garda Michael Campbell was one of the first of the investigative team on the scene that morning. When he arrived in Middleton, Detective Campbell told the jury that he had been brought to a wooded area where he saw Deirdre's body. He noted that she was naked from the chest down and had a black sweater on. He could see she had been injured and her head was bloody. Detective Campbell also noted on the scene an envelope, some coins, a leaf with what appeared to be blood on it, a pink pinafore dress, shoes and a pair of ladies' underwear. A metal bar was present in the river and a footprint was visible on the riverbank nearby. There was also a drag mark of some 19 foot in length on the scene, which the detective told the court he had presumed had come from Deirdre's body being moved. Detective Garda Bernard Kelly was also present that morning on the scene and had been tasked with taking photographs of the area as well as of Deirdre's body and the various items that were found. The detective said he had photographed the footprint with the understanding that there was to be an attempt to reproduce the mark. Due to an incoming tide, some of the items had to be moved from marshy spots that would end up covered. Detective Kelly said he could not recall if the area was wet, but agreed that a picture of a handbag indicated that it was. Bruce Antonotti, senior counsel appearing on behalf of Laffin for the defence, cross-examined the witness then and Detective Kelly confirmed to him that he had also been directed to take photographs of a local man at his home and that this man was not the defendant. The second day of the trial came to a close quickly with Mr Justice Costello sending the jury away until the following Monday, telling them that important and considerable legal issues had arisen and needed to be dealt with in their absence. The following Monday, after four days of legal argument, Justice Costello again informed the jury that proceedings would be continuing without them as legal argument had not been resolved. 
The judge said, quote, It is absolutely necessary in the interests of justice that this continues in the way it is continuing. The jury arrived back in court two days later on Wednesday the 24th of February as directed. Though the trial was in its eighth day, the jurors had heard less than one hour of evidence and had been told it was possible that they wouldn't be required to hear testimony that day either. Mr Justice Costello took his position on the bench and then informed the Twelve that they were to go home, but this time they were being discharged. The trial was over. Mr Justice Costello explained that a key witness who was to be called for the defence was unable to appear. There was medical evidence that this person was not competent to take the stand. In these circumstances, Mr Justice Costello said, there could not be a fair trial. The DPP had also accepted the view that this was the case. The judge said that this was an unfortunate development and whatever was to ultimately happen in the case would be decided at a later date. The jury was thanked and discharged and the case was adjourned until the following week. Richard Laffin was then released on bail and he walked from the court. A hearing in the proceedings occurred on the 19th of April in order to set a new date for a fresh trial. There, the state sought a further adjournment for the trial as it had secured a date in the Supreme Court for an appeal against Justice Costello's decision not to call the witness. Appearing once again for Richard Laffin, Bruce Antonotti told the court that the case would be unlikely to go ahead before autumn if the Supreme Court reversed the trial judge's decision. The matter was adjourned by Justice Costello until July 15th. Laffin's bail was extended to that time and he was also excused from attending on that date. On the 5th of May, the Supreme Court heard the DPP's application to quash the decision made by Justice Costello in the course of Richard Laffin's trial. The Chief Justice, Mr Justice Finlay, noted that the proposed witness, Mr John Fleming, of the Riversfield Estate in Middleton, had challenged his subpoena to appear as a witness on behalf of the defence as he was not competent to give evidence. During the legal argument in the trial, Mr Fleming's doctor, consultant psychiatrist in Cork, Dr F. Laguerre, had told the trial judge that Mr Fleming had been in treatment for 10 years for his mental health and was on antidepressants and tranquilizers. It was this doctor's opinion that appearing as a witness would cause a worsening in Mr Fleming's illness. This had been accepted by Mr Justice Costello. Bridget McLaughlin, writing later in the Sunday Independent, revealed more about the unwilling witness John Fleming. He was an ex-civil servant and was known locally in Middleton to be quite shy and anxious. He had taken a walk on the evening of the 13th of September, as he often did along the riverbank, before returning home. He spoke to his mother and then headed to bed. Someone had seen Mr Fleming walking in the area that evening and then later, after the hunt for Deirdre's murderer was well underway, another local said he'd seen John Fleming praying at Deirdre's grave. Amidst the many rumours flying around Middleton at the time, the quiet loner seemed more suspicious. Lacking any other leads, John Fleming was eventually arrested and brought in for questioning by Gardee. A local woman who knew Mr Fleming and his family spoke to Bridget McLaughlin for the Sunday paper. She said, quote, 
John had never done anything bad in his life. The poor man had a nervous problem. In the absence of finding anyone else, the guardie questioned him. They decided that he could have done it as he had passed that way that night, as he did every other night. They had no clues at all. For years, people were terrified of poor John. The hostility was so bad, the priest had to speak from the pulpit about the immorality of blame. The prejudice was unfounded. It was all conjecture and speculation. The priest reprimanded the public for prejudging the poor creature. Gurdy had brought him in for questioning a second time after the reports of the man seen washing his hands not far from the scene, even though Fleming didn't match the description of a short and stocky young 20-something man with dark hair. McLaughlin noted in this article that the description did, however, seem closer to the appearance of Richard Laffin. She wrote Laffin was good-looking and was popular with the young women of the town, and even implied that he knew Deirdre Mulcahy, a suggestion that was vehemently denied by the Mulcahy family. Less controversially, she reported that Laffin also had a predilection for grabbing handbags, and had got his first conviction in 1985, with six more to follow, including some for assault. The reporter went on to say that in the months after Deirdre died, Laffin had moved in with a woman who was living in Mayfield in Cork City. In February of 1990, a 19-year-old woman was brutally attacked, stabbed and left for dead in a locked outhouse on Military Hill, two kilometres away. It was shortly after this that Laffin left for the island of Jersey, where he stayed for nine months, six of which were spent behind bars. Then in 1991, the girl Laffin had lived with went to the Gardee. She said Laffin had beaten her up and she'd gone back to the flat to take her stuff and leave. In the course of packing, she came across a purse that wasn't hers. Inside, there was a bank card with the name Deirdre Mulcahy on it. This was presumably the break in the case that led to Laffin being initially charged with the robbery from Deirdre Mulcahy and the basis upon which the case against him for her murder was made. But Richard Laffin had denied he was responsible, and when he was charged with Deirdre's murder, he intended to mount a defence, which he was entitled to do. It would seem that part of that defence involved evidence from the only other person arrested for questioning in relation to Deirdre's killing, and at his trial, that man had said he was too ill to take part. In the ruling of the Supreme Court in May of 1993, Chief Justice Finlay outlined that the trial judge had found the medical evidence overwhelming in relation to Mr. Fleming's application to the criminal court. The DPP had asked that the case be adjourned for Mr. Fleming to undergo further medical examination, but Mr. Fleming had refused to agree to this. Given that it had already been agreed that the trial would not be fair without this witness's evidence, Justice Costello had then discharged the jury. The Supreme Court said that if Mr. Fleming was to undergo further examination, that issue would have to be dealt with in a new proceeding by a new trial judge. The order given during the trial was in force only so long as that proceeding had been ongoing, and the Supreme Court would not be interfering in that process. And so the DPP would have to decide whether to proceed with a fresh trial in the case, given the circumstances. The case against Richard Laffin was up for mention in the Central Criminal Court on the 15th of July. Mr Hoff for the DPP applied there for leave to enter a nolle prosequi in relation to the two charges against Richard Laffin. 
In response, Bruce Antonotti applied to have a jury sworn and directed to find Mr. Alafin not guilty of the charges. He said, quote, The accused stands before you as an accused presumed innocent. This matter has been over the accused's head for many years. He has maintained his innocence from the very outset. There must be finality to this case. Mr. Antonotti asserted that a nolle prosequi would not provide that finality. Quote, he is anxious to have his good name vindicated and has a constitutional right to have his name vindicated. Mr. Justice Costello said that a nolle prosequi in these circumstances was quite normal and granted leave to the state to enter same. Richard Laffin walked free from court. Deirdre Mulcahy's family commented only that they were disappointed that there had been no conviction in the case. The reluctant witness in the case, John Fleming, passed away in 1995, at the age of 45, from natural causes. The week after the charges were dropped, Richard Laffin gave an interview to the Sunday World newspaper. He said he had gone through 18 months of hell, and that he had had nothing to do with Deirdre's death. Since he was charged, he said, he had been threatened, barred from local businesses, and his friends had left him. He felt he was in danger. Laffin further declared that had he been found guilty, he would have gone on hunger strike and said, quote, I was determined to starve myself to death or walk free. That is not the threat of someone who was guilty. During the interview, Laffin also showed the reporter scars he'd got from cutting himself while he was on remand before trial. He'd asked his interviewer, were these the actions of a guilty person? Laffin's mother said she had also received anonymous threatening phone calls. Despite being a free man, Laffin said he felt he was going to have to leave his home and go into, quote, exile. He said, quote, people will always link me with the murder of Deirdre Mulcahy until such a time as the real killer is caught. On the 20th of March, 1996, a passerby noticed something amiss at the ruins of an old castle at Ballyannon, not far from Middleton. The remains of a man were found in a tree growing near the old stone structure in a lonely and isolated farmer's field. After the authorities were contacted, it became clear that Richard Laffin, then aged 28 years old, had hanged himself in the ruin and that his remains had been there for at least a week. Gardie had in fact been searching for Laffin. He had failed to appear in court in January three months before to face robbery charges arising from the assault of and theft from an elderly woman while she was visiting a local graveyard in Middleton. Laffin was formally identified on the 21st of March. His father spoke to the press when the news broke. Kevin Laffin said that his son had been denied the opportunity to prove his innocence. He continued, quote, We had a number of witnesses to prove that Richard Laffin could not and did not murder Deirdre Mulcahy. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at mensreapod or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Special thanks this week goes out to Penelope Luxick, Marnie and Ed. If you'd like ad-free episodes or bonus episodes, head on over to patreon.com forward slash mensreapod. With thanks to our sponsors for this week's episode, Noom and Calm. 
Remember, supporting our sponsors supports this show, so check them out in the show notes. I'll be at CrimeCon in London this weekend. Use the code MENSREA for a lovely discount. You can also now grab yourself tickets for either day if a weekend ticket is too much of a commitment for you. I hope to see you all there. Please do come up and say hello. I'll have some lovely stickers and buttons to give away. I swear I'm dying to talk to you. I'm just terribly, terribly socially awkward. Do come say hello. You can still get your tickets at crimecon.co.uk. And again, don't forget to use that code MENSREA. Our theme music is Quinn's song The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. Additional music is by Juanita Meisel and Kevin MacLeod. This episode was researched, written, and produced by me, your host, Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. And so, till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. My voice just still hasn't recovered. I'm an octave lower. I'm like Phoebe. The smelly cat, smelly cat. It's not your fault.